Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. Uh, we're going to be discussing the third episode of The Legend of Korra, The Coronation, which is uh, interesting, uh, sort of a split from the past two episodes. So we had an episode with no Korra, an episode with, well, with almost no Korra, an episode with almost exclusively Korra, and then now we have an episode that's a lot more balanced between all of the characters. Um, so there's a lot going on in this episode. Uh so much so that I took just an absurd amount of notes to make sure I could cover all of the points. Um, so uh, it starts off with the coronation, as you might expect, uh, with Wu getting all of his ducks in a row, I guess, so that he can have this lavish um, sort of royal bash. How did you feel about the uh, this this first part of the the episode? Um, I'm a I'm a lot. I'm happy with it, and the reason I'm happy with it is that uh, I enjoyed Wu a lot more than in previous episodes, and um, it, it's weird because I was really expecting to just hate Wu completely and be and be sick of him by now. But and you know, if you'd asked me two weeks ago, if you'd told me the third episode features almost exclusively Prince Wu, mm-hmm. um, he's in every single scene pretty much, and it's really about him. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have been uh, excited about that at all. But it, it works. It really works. And I think um, it, it's not exclusive. It's not just due to uh, Mako's presence. I don't think. But I think Mako. Uh, yeah, it g- gives the uh, gives those scenes a, a balance and, and brings Wu down to earth in some important ways and really humanizes him in some important ways too. And I think you know Wu. <sighs> it's. Um, I, I almost feel bad for him yeah. after this episode. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's what I was actually going to ask. So I, I like this intro part because, you know, he immediately doesn't get what he wants. Um, and it's funny because it's like he, he's rich, obviously, he still has money, but he acts like the world sort of serves him, but it doesn't really at all. Um, nothing's really happened for him except for that he's got to, like, not really do any work, you know, but that's just, like, being a rich kid. But in terms of being royalty... He hasn't really gotten any of the the treatment, I guess, that royalty might demand, and um, especially when this coronation happens or is supposed to happen, and he, you know, doesn't get any of the things he wants, and uh, none of the uh, the big celebration is is going to happen the way he he had foreseen it. And you know, it's what's cool about him is that, and this is talked about later in the episode as well, but he, you know, when the his his advisors come in, who he hasn't hasn't had any contact with apparently because he doesn't know that they're all gone and whatever and the th- only three of them show up and they say you know well you know sorry everything was stolen there's nothing i can do um he's just like sad he doesn't you know go all off with their heads or um i don't know he's just he's not like a jerk he's just bratty and spoiled but not there's no malevolence behind him and i think that that's a I think that, like, for example, his aunt Wu would have dealt with that situation very differently. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, which is, I wonder if that can be attributed at least in part to his three years in exile. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, if you... I, I couldn't stop thinking of, um, of Viserys from, in the first season of Game of Thrones, who is um, going through a similar situation and is gone completely crazy and, and he's violent and awful. And Wu is, yeah, he's really, he's spoiled, obviously, and he's a little, he's very needy, mm-hmm. but he's not, like, 
yeah, he's he's there's no uh, malice in anything he says or does. Mm-hmm. He's, he's very he's a very you know odd and kind of unpleasant person to be around. But there's a weird sweetness to it too, like like an innocence. Mm. Um, and you know when he a little bit later in the episode when they go to little bossing say and he throws the kid off the fake throne and he's because he's just so traumatized by what's happened it's a really like genuinely upsetting moment it's you know tempered like everything he does with this kind of you know abrasive uh, personality exactly and his uh, very um spoiled nature but it's still like there's an emotional core to him that was missing from the earth queen Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And he's already a lot more interesting and deep than than she was. And the other thing that I didn't even think about until just now when you were you were saying that is when um just before they go to Little Bussing say, I know we're jumping ahead, but um Mako and Bolin have a fight and Bolin calls uh says, you know, that he's that Mako's just a glorified butler for this um for this king and Wu, they show a shot of of Wu hearing this, and he, um, he his his next thing after uh, Mako comes back in isn't to reprimand him for what his brother said or to you as you might imagine somebody who overhears that might be upset. Um, it's almost like he feels bad for Mako for having to put up with him, and so he he takes him to his he doesn't bring it up. He just says, "Let's go to the the city and we'll go shopping," uh, which is. Perhaps not like what a normal person might say, um, but it's certainly what um, you know somebody with of his status and whatever socioeconomic status would would um, would say. And it's his way of you know giving back to Mako for you know putting up with all of his antics. I think, and I didn't even look at the scene that way, but uh, before. But I think that's what, exactly what it is. So even when they're sitting at the table and he says, "We'll get you some clothes in the middle ring, and then we'll get me some clothes in the upper ring." In his mind, that was a very generous thing to do, and I just and I don't know if Mako sees it that way, but you know clearly that you know struck a chord with him that he's sort of taking advantage of Mako's goodwill. Yeah, and well, like you said, his reaction to Bolin, it's you know it is very sweet. Like he cares about Mako, he yeah. really does. And that reaction to what Bolin says is born less out of I can't, you know, I'm so sorry you're fighting with your brother, and more out of I'm so sorry your brother doesn't like me. Um, that must be awful for you to deal with, but I mean, yeah, it, it's it's not a bad whatever it's, it's sympathy, whatever it is, yeah, exactly, yeah, it's genuine sympathy, and it's not a personality problem that he has. It's more of a you know, just his the the, the way he's been brought up, and the, the nature of his personality comes from some more unpleasant things, but it's it's manifesting in a less um, cruel way then and maybe it's just because uh, we only have the earth queen to compare him to right um, and well i mean and we also have the earth the old earth king that's true and he was wasn't also mean very, he was exactly yeah he was uh, i don't know who was so the earth king was the earth queen's mother so that was his great uncle i guess that was yeah Wu's great uncle yeah you know i think i think that they're developing him in an interesting way i mean they do have that moment the rich kid gets told finally what's what by someone and He's like, no one ever talked to me that way, which has been done before. But I don't know. The scene worked for me. It played out uh, and in in a way that uh, I think befit the characters. And and especially Mako's, the way Mako delivers it to him. So when his reply, oh, no one's ever talked to me that way, is perhaps, you know, 
cliche, the the way Mako tells him, uh, you know, would would you vote for you? You know, what have you done for your people at any point in time? And Wu actually thinks about that sentiment, and then you know, it's like, no, I wouldn't vote for me. I suck. You know, and basically, um, and he he just gets it. And so, like, I think he's sort of like a nice guy who was raised in the really uh, enabling environment that led to you know the way he is now. Yeah, that's true. Although uh, it is kind of strange that he is, you know, he grew up. We have to believe with, um, with nothing. But he was, I guess, it's implied, led to believe that this that this all signified a much greater wealth that was going to be his once he reclaimed his throne, which is why he was so surprised. Was apparently no one had told him that he actually didn't have anything mm. in real life because he was so surprised to learn that. All the servants were gone, and all of the, the royal stuff has been looted, which is... I, I think we can infer a lot about uh, his character just from that, from the fact that his, none of his advisors wanted to tell him that in the past three years, or felt comfortable telling him that, or thought that he could, you know, that he was emotionally stable enough, maybe, to, to take it. Um, so... I think that um, that certainly says a lot about what, what you're saying about him being living in this environment that enabled this selfishness. Mm-hmm. That you know, pe- people wouldn't tell him when things were bad because they either didn't think he could take it or they were worried that he would just he would explode explode in rage, having to you know have dealt with his aunt. Right. But now that he actually has to deal with reality, he seems to be taking it pretty well i think he does he does but we have to talk about the reality that he's dealing with which is not just that the coronation isn't going to be as fancy as he wants but um (laughs) uh before we get to um the coronation we get we get a throwaway line in there about um about kuvira that like um tenzin just tosses out and doesn't really elaborate on but he just he just mentions prison camps like for a half second, and then like the the scene moves on and talks about something else. And like, Kavira uses prison camps though, and that's like not cool. And then they just move on. And I was like, prison camps? I, I'm trying to figure out what they're where they're going with this character, but um, yeah. Well, I mean, that scene is uh, what I liked about that scene is I think it's the very first scene of the episode. I yeah, mean, yeah. Tenzin says like, you know, I heard she's throwing her dissenters into prison camps and the president says well you know <laughs> the president does you know he doesn't brush it off and he's actually a better president this season and a better person this season than we're accustomed to seeing him be and he basically says well you know what look he, she's holding a, she's giving over power tomorrow and then we can fix whatever mistakes she's made um <laughs> well, it sounds like a reasonable response exactly uh, but but um you know I still don't see like I don't I don't agree that he's coming off across as a better president because he's still, you know that's like nobody could look at Kuvira's current, you know plan of action and even you know he's like she promised she promised really, she swore she would relinquish the power really like what kind of like this is the the world of Avatar where, where people don't relinquish power that that's not a thing that happens this that. Nobody would look at what's happened so far and 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 uh, like just in the history of the show and and think that this would all just go off without a hitch. So um, I don't know. I it, it, I don't want to call him idealistic because that naive is probably the term I would use. Like who thought that would be a good idea? Um, the only thing I liked about him in this episode was 
that um, he seems to be, or throughout this, the, the first couple episodes of this season, he seems to be pretty aware that Wu's kind of an idiot. And that's, you know, encouraging, because even though he's playing Mako for political purposes, he's not... Um, he's not doing it, you know, as if he thinks Wu's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's, he's doing it because he knows he has to make nice with the new leader of the Earth Kingdom. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I guess, well, two quick things. One is that I think maybe Raiko's trusting of Kuvira has something to do with the fact that he uh, distrusted Korra so much mm-hmm. and clashed with her so much, and she was right in all of those circumstances. He probably should have helped her. Uh, and I, you know, from his perspective, maybe he's thinking, well, you know... It, the last time I didn't put my faith in someone who was trying to help me put the world back together, it, whatever, all these bad things happened. So I'll put my faith in Kuvira. She seems like she's uh, doing a pretty good job of keeping things stable. And, you know, she does. She she seems, from an outside perspective, like a very competent uh, leader. And uh, well, the other thing that's interesting is that what you were just saying, that he has no faith in Wu, he says in that scene, well, you know, he's not really going to lead the country. We're going to send a bunch of advisors right. to do the day and day-to-day governance, which he's, he's basically saying, like, we're not going to give him power anyway. We're going to actually be pulling pulling his strings, mm-hmm. which is, of course, exactly what Kuvira is is afraid of, is this, you know, incompetency with... That's true. To, it's sort know, of like a, a confirmation of her, you know, worry. Yeah, yeah, and it's so when she eventually just uh, seizes power or... Uh, keeps her power in during the coronation she's making good points and it's funny to see a villain in any of these series not since the fire lord i don't think uh, make this speech about their evil plans and have the crowd cheer and, and say you know oh, we, we love you kavira the great uniter that's what they call her the great uniter mm-hmm. that's awesome um so it's cool to have a villain who not only has a good point but is that point is recognized by a lot of people. the world yeah and not just by like the evil throngs of you know, Fire Nation people who would, you know, worship the Fire Lord no matter what, but by actual, like, citizens of Republic City. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I like that, that scene, well, I, I guess, um, we can, we can talk about that. What did you think of this moment where she, she does exactly what we thought she was going to do and, like, there's no frills or anything, she just does it. It's a very, uh, straightforward kind of moment. Yeah, it's an interesting almost commentary on just the nature of uh, political leadership. The fact that, yeah, exactly, there's no, like, paperwork or anything. There's no complicated uh, passing of, of laws or just... She, yeah, she just makes a speech. She says, I'm not leaving. I'm going to retain power. Uh, we're the Earth Empire now. Mm-hmm. And that's that. And there's there's nothing else to it. And it's um, an interesting kind of way to say that... Kind of the... Um, the illusory nature of power in general that you know she only has power because she she says she does and because she has the ability uh, to retain it and you know the the intelligence and the willpower and the people behind her yeah, to, to be able to retain it uh, yeah the resources and it's really only that and of course what she's saying is look he doesn't have any power he only has power because people he's related to have had power in the past but i earned it mm-hmm. and but what is what the scene is really illustrating is the fact that she only has power because she says she does because she is you know because like I just <clears throat> because like I just said she has the ability to get it 
Right. So it is. It's an interesting kind of political commentary. And the fact that everyone agrees with her. And that's also a thing. It's like, look, if everyone agrees that you have power, then you do. Right. Exactly. And, you know, and also the the insignificance of, you know, royal artifacts and things as representations of anything other than uh, lavishness. and The royal brooch. Yeah. yeah. Or, or the medal of freedom that um, Wu gives to her. And then she promptly crumples up. But, um... So yeah, it was a weird moment for me because Kavira uh, just does it, and like nobody interrupts her. She doesn't really threaten anyone. She says she says generally she's like, if anyone gets in my way, I'll crush them or or something to that effect. And then she crushes the metal, which is like, yes, we know you're a metal bender. Good job. Like, and Mako can make fire with his hands, and a lot of people can do things that's cool that are cool. <laughs> but but like she doesn't you know grab Wu and like put a knife to his throat or, you know, do anything drastic to imply that she's, like, serious business or anything. She just says it, and then everyone reacts. It's just a... It wasn't the way I expected that scene to go down. I thought maybe it would be at the end of the episode and it would be a lot more dramatic, but it wasn't. The drama was, like, the fallout from it. That's true. That's an interesting point. Um, this, it, yeah. It, does... it wasn't the climax or anything. It was, like... Exactly. It seems like... It should be the climax of an episode, mm-hmm. something this dramatic. But you're right. But I think the reason it's not the climax is because the focus of this ep- this is an episode about Prince Wu. So if this was, if an episode about Prince Wu can't culminate with you know something that Kuvira does, it has to culminate with something with uh, Wu's reaction to. Well, it, it could it could if you put the focus on Wu during that scene. You know what I mean? If you showed him. You know his reaction and his. You know what I mean? If you really made it clear. But I don't know that this is a Wu episode. I mean it's. There's a lot of focus on him, but I mean, there's a lot of focus on on Korra as well, and and Mak. Although I guess it's as terms of plot, it is more about Wu. Um, in terms of the plot of the you know of the whole season, um, yeah, yeah. So I I agree, and but I just think you know it was like it was an interesting choice to do it the way they did, where they didn't you know they didn't leave um, they didn't leave it until the last second, and then pull you know some sort of really tense you know ma- dramatic. Uh, musically themed like moment it was just very straightforward um and then again we see a lot of follow-up follow-up from this one thing i just want to mention before we continue the beginning part when everyone's arriving from the different nations um we see a couple of different things first um we see eska and deska and we get a very strange moment that i just want to comment on because we do a game of thrones podcast and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. And wh- what is with that? That was, okay, they haven't had a role at all for, like, two seasons, basically. They they fought for five seconds in the first, in uh, season three. Um, and then they have this one scene that we've seen in uh, season four where um, it's revealed that they only have a single bed and sleep in the same room at this hotel. Because Desna sleeps in the tub supposedly i i mean i was like yeah that they, is they a... wait a little too long to get to that punchline and like they let they leave the question hanging but i also wonder long. if that's I, to me it wasn't really a punchline it was sort of like a like i'm gonna give you a throwaway excuse you don't need to know our business kind of thing and i was like that is a weird thing to put in the show and also i'm not for some weird reason i'm not surprised at all that that is a I don't know what is going on, but if it is a thing, I'm not even surprised because they're so weird. Um, 
and similar and just ugh. But uh, I just why <laughs> what I don't know. It just like came out of left field in terms of the show. Um, yeah, I just that whole vibe was strange. It was. I did like that. Um, just the scene in the lobby overall, where we kind of got. Um... It was nice to kind we of get, get to back. catch up with a few characters. Exactly, yeah. It was kind of like getting back in the groove of the show and getting back to what we know this show to be, which we got away from, not to not in a negative way, but we got away from last week with Korra alone, and there was a lot of kind of future shock with the, just the time jump in mm-hmm. the first episode. So it was nice, yeah, did we kind of get reminded that um, Eska and Desna exist, and then we get a brief scene with um, Varric and Julie. Mm-hmm. And just just a little, a lot of little stuff like that. We don't get anything with the new Fire Lord, which is kind of weird. Yeah, so I wanted to also mention that. So I, we had, oh, I I had predicted that this season would take place, or there'd be a lot of um, Fire Nation stuff going on because we haven't seen any of the new Fire Nation yet. And you would think, of the two places, I think that were the most affected. You wanted to see the Earth Kingdom, and the Fire Nation by the you know in terms of what happened in the war and what we saw in the last series. So. I figured the Fire Nation would be logical because, you know, what does that nation look like following their, you know what I mean, kind of like Japan after World War II or something, you know, is it like super technologically advanced now? Is it, you know, I could imagine a lot of ways they could go with that. Uh, And we haven't really met the Fire Nation royal family, you know, Zuko's kids, except for, you know, we see smatterings of them throughout this series, but nothing concrete. And we certainly haven't met the new Fire Lord. Uh, but she's at the coronation. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't do anything. Just sits there. She exists, and then we move on. Um, but I like want to meet her and figure out what I think we're going to get more. It wouldn't just. Yeah, I'd be surprised if we don't get at least, at the very least, a scene just introducing her, and we maybe we find out her name. <laughs> like Something. At the, at the, just a base, a baseline for who she might be as a character, and yeah, I think there's two ways to go with it. I wonder if maybe they're being so coy about the Fire Nation this whole series because there's something up their sleeves and there's some re- some reveal to be had. Yeah, maybe. Uh, or is it just because the the story they're telling does the Fire Nation really doesn't have any relevance to it? That's also, also you know, they might just want to refocus away from the Fire Nation because they spent so much time on it in the first series, but they spent so much time on the Earth Kingdom too. Like it's there's no but they've done the Air Nation or the new Air Nation anyway. They've done they did plenty with the Water Tribe, and they've done plenty with the Earth Kingdom. So, like, I don't know. I kind of want to catch up with the, the Fire Nation at this point. Yeah. Just to see what's going on. But, so, also, just the way the world leaders reacted to that whole scene. Like, they seemed kind of... I don't know, Zuko was sitting right there, and that doesn't seem like something that he would just watch passively. I mean, they're all like... <gasps> But then that's it. And then later, we don't even see their reaction. We see Su Yin as their avatar. No, as their uh, represent, <laughs> as their representative, uh, who you know confronts Kavira about what they, what they, about what she did, and how they're how they feel about it. Yeah, Zuko especially would not be cool with this because Zuko knows full well, you know, what this looks like. So yeah, I, I am. This does feel like an episode that has a lot of missing pieces. Um, that maybe just to fit into 22 minutes, they had to kind of uh, shave off here and there. And it is kind of... I I get why they don't... They didn't feel that they needed to show that meeting because we basically get most of that information, we we assume, uh, when Su Yin goes to tell it all to Kuvira. But yeah, it would have been nice to kind of 
see these arguments and paint Kuvira in a villainous light from not the audience perspective, but from the character's perspective. Yeah. So we get a more in-world view of why other characters might be suspicious of her. Because right now all we have to <laughs> really go on is what we think of her and our reaction to her. Well, not only that, her constant smirks that no one else seems to see. The villainous music that always plays. Yeah, yeah. it plays, and then she's like, and then I, I, every time... Oh my god, when she goes, I always get what I want, and then the drums, like, dun 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 Yeah, yeah. Like, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I wonder what's gonna happen. Oh. Um, but, but you know what? I, what's funny is that it's obvious, but it's also, like, exactly like her character. She does that. She, um, she, just like when she took control, she didn't, there was no extra. She just there was no subtlety at all. She does. She lacks subtlety completely. She just does it, and I think that uh, her just saying like basically what I would say if I were her at the end of the season if she's eventually overthrown, which I'm assuming she will be. Um, you know, somebody saying something like you know how could you do that or how could you and her just saying you know I never hid anything from anyone. I basically said exactly what I was going to do. And everyone just stood there, and then I did it. You know, that's the way she's operated. That's true. That's very interesting. And yeah, she hasn't. Um, assuming that my theory about her and the bandits is incorrect, and we haven't gotten any other mention of that. So, if they do just drop it, then, it, like they seem to have, then maybe yeah, maybe she has nothing to do with the bandits after all. And if that's true, then you're right. She hasn't hidden anything, and that's another. Another, I think, reference to, you know, fascist leaders in uh, real-world history. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's like, like not, it's it's like, the, you know, the Nazis or, or, or exactly, you know, whatever. Exactly, like the Nazis didn't, you know, they were, Hitler was very open about his beliefs. Uh, he wasn't trying to uh, hide anything from his supporters. Uh, he was certainly spinning it in a more positive light, but he wasn't, like, lying really about what he was doing he he was keeping it from the rest of the world but it was so also stop him it was also gradual too and and exactly people, you yeah. know before people knew it you know it's not like but it's not like people woke up one day and said i'm gonna support a genocidal maniac yeah that <laughs> was that was not anybody's line of well at least most i think most people's line of thought um but then you know before they knew it yeah that was a an interesting thing that you know i i would like i'm curious to see how our arc plays out but i think that it's hinting at a very um you know that she's she's unapologetic now and she will be unapologetic even if she's overthrown because she just she doesn't feel like she did anything overtly wrong uh, well i think with the mention that that you said of the prison camps that's probably the direction we're going in yeah well i mean prison camps but like again people know about it and unlike nazi germany or whatever where you know some people knew about what was going on, but it was it was not widespread news. A lot of people didn't believe it. You know what was going on until the Allies, you know, actually liberated the camps, um, and they were like, "Oh my God, this is a real thing. This is horrifying." Um, here they know they're like, "There's prison camps," and everyone's just like, "Well," but she united people, <laughs> um, which is you know, and that's it's terrifying in that it's so. You know, people are just so sick of the chaos caused by the Red Lotus that they're they're willing to put up with fairly severe um, laws, I guess. Yeah, really. Um, yeah, well, it's another it's another Fire Nation thing, another callback to uh, Last Airbender Fire Nation, the the idea of prison camps and and keeping your enemies on uh, like 
on the big the big uh, ships, for instance. Oh yeah, yeah. Like we got on the first season and stuff like that, and subjugating your enemies by taking. It. We don't really know a lot of Kuvira's kind of mo, but if I had to guess, based on what we know already, it's probably not dissimilar from uh, Fire Lord Ozai. Yes, in some ways, although it's more intelligent, I feel it's more calculated. It's not just when will I have the most power so that I can do my thing. You know what I mean? It's it's more measured. Um, I yeah, I'm wondering if we're gonna get an episode that gives us a lot more insight into her character, not not just through because like we didn't ever get insight into Zahir. We well, sorry, that's not true. We got insight into Zahir both through when he talks to Korra, like in um, uh, in the spirit world, she, he basically tells her the entire plan. Uh, of the Red Lotus. Um, but before that, we get insight into the characters because we have whole scenes with them, you know. Uh, those Throughout the beginning and, you know, throughout the whole series, really, um, even through the finale, where we get to see the Red Lotus operating on their own. And I wonder if we might get some moments with Kuvira operating on her own. Uh, we've already gotten a little bit of that when we see her bullying the mayor of Yai in the first episode. So, um, but I, I hope we see more of that because... Those moments, I think, give us the clearest example of what she's like, um, you know, and not through someone else's lens. We are seeing it point blank, objectively. This is how she is. Yeah, and again, like you said, we've only gotten that once so far this season. So far, right. And and it's too early, I think, to do that. But I think now that we're seeing her, you know, sort of develop these plans, we're getting a little bit more. Especially at the end of this episode, not to jump the gun, but we get, you know, get we get a lot of scenes that are... You know, just with Varric, just with, um, just with Kuvira, you know, whatever, that are very brief, but they imply that we're going to get more of that sort of thing later. Yeah. Oh, you, actually, you know what? You know what? I just remember this. Um, an interesting kind of thing about Kuvira and her followers is when she talks to Bolin and he kind of expresses some mis- misgivings, she basically says, look, you know, I, we're not actually going to crush people. That was just some tough rhetoric. Yeah to get show people that we mean business and he she seemed you know it's obviously she could very easily just be lying but it seems genuine and genuine enough for for Bolin to believe it and when he talks to Mako like a scene later he repeats it word for word very it's a, it's a very creepy almost thing where you know this kind of re- repeating her exact her exact sentiments mm mm-hmm. Uh, in order to, because it convinced him, obviously. So why shouldn't it, you know, convince convince Mako? Exactly, and it it's creepy, but it's also, you know, just to you know temper that a little bit. I I know also that when you like hear a new argument about something that you hadn't considered before, and it convinces you, you tend to repeat the same argument again so that you can, because you're like, well, it convinced me. Like I think that's a very normal reaction. But what I like about that moment is, and we're totally skipping over Cora uh, a little bit here. But uh, what I really like about that moment is that Mako has his own thoughts in that scene. He has his own thing that he came up with on his own about what Kuvira is. And his and it's influenced, obviously, by the fact that he spent time around Wu and maybe, maybe you know, has a little bit of sympathy for the guy. Um, but certainly, even if he didn't, his background as a cop and interest in the law and, and things like that are keeping him from supporting Kuvira at all. Uh, meanwhile, Bolin's just repeating party lines, uh, you know, he's just, you know, parroting rhetoric, and I think the dichotomy of just the blind, not blind, I mean, he does question it, but just the blind repetition versus, you know, original thought in that scene is very clear. Yeah, he, tr- he trusts Kuvira, I think, more as a, more personally, 
than he does, you know, politically. Yeah. I think that's what that shows. That when he sees her on the stage making this speech, he starts to uh, have some uh, problems with it. Right. But when she personally goes to him and explains what she means, or what she says she means, then he's able to become more comfortable with it because he trusts Kuvira uh, as a person that he knows and he vouches for her a lot so far this season. Like, with every character who's, ex- who's kind of expressed the same misgivings that he does... He says, "No, you know, she's she's tough, all right, but she's a good she's a good person, and she's doing good." Mm-hmm. And you know, from his perspective, obviously, can't really argue with it. Like she is doing good for people you know, at at whatever cost. But from someone who's standing right next to her and who maybe isn't seeing the consequences of what she's doing, or the more behind the scenes hidden stuff that she's doing, then I can definitely see from Bolin's perspective, like you, you know. Why does it? Why is everyone so uh, upset about what she's doing? She seems great to me. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny in that it's like the only scene where Kavira doesn't have some evil smile or some sinister thought or make some threat, direct threat. You know, it's a, it's an interesting back and forth between them because it's so like sweet and she's she's like, no, that's not what's going on, and, and it does. I do get that manipulative, you know, feeling from her. We also get a quick shot of her earlier of. Um the exact same thing where she's like talking with some supporters and she's got this like very genuine smile on her face and she doesn't seem, you know, not the sinister smirk, but this very like sweet, honest smile that she's, you know, she's talking to people who like her and then Wu comes along and it immediately straight faced. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Cause that's when he's, when he like makes some crass comment about her looks. Um, Right, in the hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the hotel lobby, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, there's... It, it seems like she's a very good politician, and I think that's what she realized very quickly, and that's why she's been able to rise to power, is that she's good at putting on a good face onto a bad situation, um, which is what politicians do, I guess. Um, I thought that all that all came together well. I think that the, the relationship between Bolin and Kuvira is... Uh, something that's going to obviously be explored and as as more of her her stuff comes to light more of her misdeeds um one of the things that i i liked about this episode though is that just after that scene we get one where suyin confronts um kuvira and we have this very heated back and forth um which concludes with uh kuvira overtly threatening zaofu which is kind of a huge deal and you have a feeling obviously that there's going to be a big you know, showdown there. Um, but it's a problem because Zafu is so, is like a stronghold, but it's a stronghold, A, to people who aren't metal benders, and B, to people who don't know the city. But she knows, she is a metal bender, a very talented one, and also she knows the city backwards and forwards. So um, the bat showdown is going to be really interesting because you're going to have someone who has intimate knowledge of the place that they're attacking, um, and then, you know, Suyin and all of them trying to defend, and it's going to be... Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what the uh what the fallout is from that. Yeah, I like that scene because there's this uh the subtext of that scene is compared to the Bolin scene that Kuvira is like I know that you know what I'm all what I'm really all about. Yep. So I don't have to hide anymore. Yes. Which gives us a little more subtle information about what happened uh when she left Zaofu that it was clearly uh violent or if not, you know, literally physically violent then emotionally volatile and very heated and uh, we get a little i don't know if you picked this up we get a little tidbit uh when 
Sue talks to her son, and he she she calls him Batar Junior, and he says it's just Batar now. Yep. And that could be him just relinquishing his family name and taking his own, you know, a name for himself. But I took it as uh, is his father dead? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, I didn't think about that. And that's because that that would be a a good reason to. Um, well, at the very least, there's like there was a there was something that. Yeah, the, I think yeah. The easy answer is just that there was the falling out, and he left it behind. But I that was a kind of implication I got just 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 in terms of his tone. He has this very kind of yeah. But would would they be so? Like, would they stand to talk to each other, be in the same room or whatever, if someone had killed her husband? You know what I mean? I don't know if that. I think they would be a lot more heated, even three years later. You can't just kill someone's husband and then. You know, yeah. Have a different. Although this is like they're obviously in a lobby with all the leaders of the True. world, so it's they can't start fighting. Yeah, just out in the open. You know, I realized that's the other thing about this episode. We have almost no bending. There's a little bit in the swamp, but yeah. There's a little bit of the right, right. There's a little bit of brief stuff, and we've got to talk about that. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> but uh, and we get a little bit in the city when Mako bends to get away from um, the people who are attacking Wu. Uh, but yeah, um, this episode was, a, was kind of light on that, which was interesting. Um, but let's, let's talk about the swamp a little bit. Let's talk about the thing we were waiting for. And I, I love that they opened this episode, not with Toph at all. Just to, yeah, that's true. Just to dig the knife in a little bit as we <laughs> waited. Um, so old Toph, what do you think? Uh, I, ha- all right. My initial reaction is great. Yeah, they nailed it. Well, they did nail it, really. Yeah, this is exactly what you would expect Old Toff to be like in terms of. Well, the voice is fantastic. The voice is spot on, and the personality is too. But part of me think, and I think you're gonna disagree with me, and <laughs> but part of me feels like she's she's way harsher and way meaner than I remember Toff being. Really? Oh and yeah. Maybe no. it's just the um. I, maybe it's just the circumstances. And I think it might be just the circumstances that seem like, why are you being so <laughs> so hard on Korra when, mm-hmm. you know, this is all this awful stuff's going on, when she refuses to, she gets so frustrated, she refuses to get the medal, mm-hmm. uh, which seemed to me like, it, maybe that's a thing that Toph would do, like, I can, I can buy that, but it also seems like, you know, given what Korra's going through and given the, you know, context of the situation, it seems a lot crueler of Toph and um well we also know more about Korra though than I think she does that's true although she claims to be able to see everything so maybe you know, she claims to although I you know I challenge that but anyway we'll, <laughs> we'll see what what happens there but I think um I thought it was right in line with her character I mean the way she treats Aang uh when he's she's first teaching him earthbending do you remember that episode it's it's crazy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's she's awful she like throws boulders at him for, like, an episode, until she finally relents and is like, oh, maybe I shouldn't throw boulders at you, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and she's like, if you don't want to learn, then I'm not going to teach, you know, it's, it's, she, it's the exact same thing, you're seeing it again, and even if it wasn't, she's old, so you could just attribute it to her getting bitter, and, but she's always been ridiculously stubborn, um, very, you know, that tough love, you know, type of thing, and it's, I don't know, it seemed totally in line with her personality, when she, um, you know when Cora wants to hug her, and she's like, "If you want to hug something, go hug a tree." And yeah, that was that I thought for sure. That was that was right in line, or you know when she's like, "I'm the original Beifong," which is awesome. 
Oh yeah, that was my favorite line of the whole episode. It was it was excellent line, and not only was it excellent because it's like oh Toph thinks she's the best, and because she is, um, it's also uh, you know it has subtext in the rift and also the blind bandit. Uh, you know she says I'm the original Beifong, like that has more meaning than we like really get you know on the surface because she rejected her parents and her family and her family name in terms of what it represented before you know this you know very posh very like she reinvented what Beifang meant that was a huge deal it was the most the richest the most powerful family in the earth kingdom and she took what was you know this very you know uh clean cut image and turned it into you know Toph and Suyin and Lin and it's just a very different uh, reputation. And so when she's like, I'm the original Beifong, she's like, you know, basically saying I reinvented this, this family name and took it and made it my own thing. Um, it's just, there's like a lot to that. Not only is it funny and, and appropriate for the character um, personality wise, it's also, it has history behind it. Yeah. And I, all right. I think, you, I think you've convinced me. I think, <laughs> I think I'm good with, cause I really did enjoy those scenes. I really did. I really like it. It's them. hard not to. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's nice to well, Toph was always one of the best characters oh, yeah. on the original show. There's no one no one on this planet would argue with that. She, Toph is great, and it's great to, we haven't really had. There's no Toph analog for Korra, uh, the Legend of Korra. No, there's no kind of um, you know. Obviously, we have Lin and Su Yin, but they're they're not similar to Toph personality wise, and they're not they don't play the same role well, in the there's show. There's bits and pieces. I would say they don't play the same role at all, but I would say that Lynn has a lot of qualities that Toph has. I mean Oh yeah, certainly but part of she... what attracted me to her character in the first season, she was just she did so many things that were like, you know, like you know, the abrasive initial and then initial impression you get of her and then she of course, you know, has a soft spot for the Avatar and, and really sticks her neck out for her multiple times and now they're really close. And I think that that's that's a that's a continuation of the same sort of thing. But you're right, it's not there's no direct analog. Yeah, although I think Lynn loses the um the sense of humor of Toph. And oh yeah, no, she's got none of that. That's what I um associate most strongly with Toph. Yeah. It is not just the, the tough love, but the but that kind of very <laughs> very self-centered, very you know, often cruel sense of humor, which is in, in, which works in the original series, and sometimes self-deprecating as well. That's true. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Because um, she can't, you know, the blind thing is always going to be a factor, whereas it's not for her daughters. Um, Although not yeah, not self-deprecating in this episode, though. Oh no, 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 and, and you know, the opposite. Yeah. The other thing about her is that she, um, well, it's not self-deprecating in that. It's like, I wouldn't, sorry, I, let me rephrase that. I wouldn't say self-deprecating. I would say it's, it, she acknowledges her disability very often, which is something that, you know, to keep it in our consciousness. And there's not something that Lynn can do to do a similar thing for us. Um, and the other thing is, you know, something we lose with old Toph that is not a problem at all. It's just, it's, it's inherent. There's nothing you can do about it. Is that, you know, what I loved about Toph as a character and, and why I think the Blind Band is probably the best episode of Avatar um, is that, you know, you have you have this incredible uh, split between the way she... You get three Toffs in The Blind Bandit. You have um, Toff, the, like, good, rich girl who doesn't step out of line and listens to what her parents tell her to do. You have The Blind Bandit, who's, you know, the Toff we know. And then you also have this 
kid who's basically rejected by her parents for trying to be herself and you know it's really depressing and she you know the most heartbreaking part of that episode is you know when she finally runs away to join Aang and uh, Katara and Sokka and she says you know my parents let me go and they're like well that's great we better go before he changes his mind but clearly they didn't let her go you know um and it's just it's depressing because it's like that's what good parents might have done and they didn't for her and you that's all to say that it reminds you that she's this little kid you know um and you're never going to get that with Toph as an old woman because she's not a little kid anymore but that that element of innocence that she she's this person with incredible power but is also kind of like Aang actually in a lot of ways but who's still just a kid so you know there's that that balance that she has to strike constantly you know yeah well just in general the the idea of children the heroes being children is something that Korra doesn't have it can't uh no absolutely yeah i mean the characters are in their 20s at this point yeah they're in their early 20s all of them so and they weren't children to begin with they they were, you know, teenagers, but they weren't 12-year-olds like in the original series, and that's something that the original series leaned pretty heavily on a lot of the time in terms of their emotional, you know, mindsets and uh, the way they reacted to things and the way that people treated them. But, and uh, yeah, that's something that this show has never uh, had used in any way, except maybe with Tenzin's kids a little, but they're not real. They're not a big, big part of the show. They're not a big part of the show. I would say maybe with Kai or before he got older, um... Yeah, maybe. You know what's funny? If this ends up being the best season of the show, which I think it's shaping up to be probably the best season of the show, um, they will have never gotten teenagers quite right. You know what I mean? I think I think they did a good job, especially through season three, um, with the teenagers. But now, like, the characters seem much more, like, just everything about them seems to be coming across a lot better. But they're adults. And the show's never had problems with adults. They've never had problems with kids. It's that teenage. It's really difficult to capture, uh, partially because teenagers are annoying. Um, so unless you're unless you're being untruthful about how teenagers are, you're going to get annoying characters because that's how teenagers are. So um, so you got that that problem. But I think you know that by jumping forward now, all the characters are effectively adults, and so you have a um, you know, they have a lot. I think an easier time playing with their emotions because they're people who make the show are adults and know full well how adults might react. Yeah, and they uh, they always seemed like adults too. The show always kind of put them in more adult uh, positions, like with Asami, you know. Because what do teenagers do? It's difficult. Like, what do teenagers? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, like Mako getting the detective job and Asami being taking over this corporation and you know, and whatever. But it's yeah, it's it doesn't seem like that big a leap, and it's not that big a leap because it's only three. It's not that big a leap, but now they don't have to try the teenage stuff as much. You know, they don't have to like really push it, and so and that's where I think they they faltered. And they gave up on the love triangle stuff a long time ago, thank God. So They did. They've totally scrapped it, and that's great, because I think they've realized it just doesn't work, and who cares? But I will say this, and I think you've heard me say this before, um, in uh, you know off the air, um, but uh, I will say I think this season is really going to help the first season and maybe the second season's love triangle stuff. Uh, and the reason for that is it puts the whole series in a context, you know, where the first season was small scales about Republic city. And then, you know, season two was about, you know, the spirits and everything like that. But, uh, it was, there was a lot of very water nation, you know, water tribe centric plot. 
uh, even though it had massive you know ramifications for the whole world. And then season three, of course, the Red Lotus has you know their mission was to instill chaos in the world and and you know institute chaos and so um, and anarchy. And I think that what this series has done has gotten more and more serious, you know, serious about its, the ramifications of what's going on. And with that, the subplots have gotten more serious. So now instead of Mako and Bolin fighting over Asami and Korra and that whole, you know, petty fight, we have this really intense ideological confrontation between Bolin and Mako over Kuvira, which is really mature, uh, speaks to their growth, both, you know, emotionally psychologically, whatever, but also just years have passed. And it puts the first season, it makes those fights in the first season look so much more petty, but almost to its advantage, where it's like the show is like, yes, we know those were petty fights. This is a real conflict. And so, you know, now they're mature, now they're dealing with real things, and it just, it shows like an evolution of the relationships on the show. Yeah, and it also... um, Which I I never thought I'd say, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I, I think it also sets, I think those early fights set up um, dynamics. You know, as, as petty as they were, they set up the, that relationship between Mako and Bolin well enough that we understand the context of their fight in this episode in terms of, you know, not whatever plot-wise is going on, but in terms of who they are as characters. And I think what it comes down to is that Bolin is always trying to prove himself to his brother. And he's always trying to prove that in this in this situation especially, he comes and he has this you know he's so he's very proud of this uniform he's got and the work he's done and the important position he holds compared compared to what Mako's been doing and when Mako you know is not proud of him but is instead you know tries to <laughs> talk him out of it basically says what Kuvira is doing is shady and I don't approve of it you can understand why Bolin would be upset by that when he seems to like what he does he does really to impress his brother and mm-hmm. to live up to his brother and to have you know all these accomplishments and then go to his brother and have his brother disapprove completely i think that must be upsetting for him that might be something that more overtly comes in later you know maybe they'll they'll have a moment where you know bolin has moved on from trying to impress his brother and just decides he's going to do what he wants for him and not for to impress anyone else and this has always been a theme, by the way. Yeah, you know, even with the movers in season two, and when Mako was at the crappy detective. Oh yeah, job, and he didn't. He and, didn't. Yeah, and Mako care was trying to prove that Varric was a criminal, and Bolin got upset. It, it, this has always been a theme, and this is just. I think this is the more most important context that that. Uh, right. Exactly. So has, it puts the movers in context as well as like more petty. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, as a you know a vanity exercise kind of thing. Yeah. No. I I think that their their conflict's great, and you know the other thing. Um, the other thing about that scene where they're having the confrontation in the hallway outside of Wu's room is that uh, I just, I like this moment also because it, it reemphasizes the idea that, you know, Wu's not a great choice um, and neither is Kafira. So, like, it it doesn't play any side up as, like, the obviously right one um, other than we know Kavira's evil and that Wu... And the sh- so the show doesn't in that moment suggest that one side makes more sense than the other. But we know from the fact that Mako's using original thought and not just repeating lines, and also that we see Wu humanize a little bit more, whereas Kuvira's just played to be evil, um, that while we can see points in this argument that both seem reasonable, 
Um, internally, we're like, obviously, Mako's on the right track here, and Bolin's on the wrong track. But it doesn't, it doesn't seem to pick sides on that, and I think that that also adds a layer of complexity to their relationship. And yeah, and also, the last time this happened with Varric, um, the show has forgiven Varric for that. Yep. And Varric is now, well, he was a protagonist, pretty much, and he's now, again, in this kind of morally ambiguous area. But he's never been treated as a villain, even though yeah, that's what Mako was accusing him of, him of. So even though Mako was right that Varric was doing something illegal, he was wrong. Bolin was right to suggest that he's not a bad guy. Right. And I, that, I think that's also the direction they're going with Kuvira, is, you know, Mako is right that she is not the uh, shining example of uh, moral leadership that uh, people might expect her to be. But Bolin is also right that she is not a you know, villain, a, a vicious conqueror who is only in it for herself. Right. She does have her own... But she does seem a little power drunk at this point. Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, but, you know, those smirks, man. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so we get a little bit more with Toph and Korra. Um, we learn something very important. Uh, oh, by the way, sorry, let me just go back. One last thing about Bolin. Bolin, uh, I thought that moment where he says, you know, we're going around the Earth Kingdom bringing freedom wherever we go. Bringing freedom. Now, that was an interesting choice. Because uh, that's like the, it's like an internet meme about America and their, you know, foreign policy involvement. Uh, that, you know, mm. we bring freedom to other countries um, with, you know, like, bombs, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's an interesting choice to use that, to use the term freedom specifically. Um, and that, and that's not unique to the United States. Obviously, like, the United States has a an association with the term freedom. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, but the idea that he really believes they're bringing it, it, it's, it's a different it's a different bit of rhetoric than we see of just she's bringing order she's bringing food to people she's bringing freedom and like that's a whole other ideological you know concept of you know freedom freedom from what freedom from government not really they're still you know everyone's still reliant on the government are they free from it almost seems like something that Zahir might say or some other character might say because you know with a completely different meaning of what freedom means so I'm very curious to see if they play up what Kuvira is selling her platform as. Is she selling it as freedom? Is she selling it as military might, you know, and, and protection? Or Well, they call her the Great Liberator, right? Or what do they call her? The Great Uniter. The Great Uniter. So I think that's probably um, what she's selling herself as, is as a Uniter, and maybe freedom comes as an implied uh, part of that. But but what does that mean? Like, freedom, you know, they seem to be... I mean, okay, so stuff sucked with the bandits and everything, but they weren't beholden to anyone except for their like local townships so it makes me wonder you know that i don't know that line stuck out to me that you know they're traveling around the country you know bringing freedom um it just seems like a very different a different thing and it makes you wonder if kuvira might have said something in private that led him to say that out loud and that she actually has even bigger ideas and I, you know there's some of that hinted with the spirit vine technology that they seem to be working with Mm. Um, at the end, uh, we, we can speculate on that in a minute, but first I want to just address Korra because we get a really important revelation. We were speculating a lot last yeah. episode about what's going on with, uh, Phantom Korra. And it seems that, um, there is still mercury poisoning, whatever in her body. Um, so yeah. What'd you think of that? 
Uh, oh, I'm surprised you didn't jump right into your Suyin Red Lotus thing. I'm about to. Yeah, just um, you're jumping the gun, man. There has never, well, yeah, there's never been better evidence. But <laughs> well, I have two pieces of evidence in this episode. By the way, I just want to bring this up. When they're at the when they're at the coronation, um, Kuvira specifically reintroduces the idea that Suyin does not like royalty. Specifically reintroduces the the bit that we had associated with Red Lotus rhetoric in the last season. And by we, I mean conspiracy theorists. <laughs> um, so, and then here she's, she's like, you know, I grew up with, you know, in, in Zhao Fu under, and under Suyin, I learned that the royalty is out of date and archaic and whatever. Uh, and I was like, you're bringing that up again. And then we find out that Suyin either is a lame metal bender, which is what Toph seems to suggest, or intentionally left poison in her body. And that's, that's like a, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It is good evidence. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the first thing I thought of when that was brought up. Is like, oh no, they're really? coming back. The Suyin conspiracists are coming yeah, back. It, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there can't be. They they do have Toph brush it aside, but I mean, it, that seems like some pretty solid uh, reasoning, mm-hmm. I think. But yeah, what you said about the the Phantom Korra. Um, I don't know. It, it if it really is just the there's still mercury in her body, I'll be a little disappointed. Mm. And I think it's more than that. I mean, even Toph says It has to be more than that. Well, because... even Toph says you don't want it out. And so I think it's like she's you know, that it even owes to the self-flagellation. It's like if she knows it's in there or in some part of her knew it was in there and that she didn't want to become the avatar again and she didn't really want some part of her really didn't want to return to her position that it is, you know, it's that self-flagellation thing you were talking about, that she's intentionally not getting rid of the metal that's in her body. But like we said in the last episode, um, the Phantom Corps can physically interact with her, yep. and, and the spirit can see it. So this isn't just a Fight Club thing where she's beating herself up and she's... Ima- well, that's, I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. She's beating herself up and she's imagining someone else doing it. It's... It ha- but based on what we know by this point, it has to be more than that. It has to be more than a hallucination caused by, you know bits of mercury in her body and that's why it didn't even occur to me when the when the mercury was brought up again that that might be the cause of the hallucination or whatever um well we did i mean i did mention last week that when she melts into the um when the phantom core melts into the earth you know into a pool of mercury that the implication was that the poison was still the problem but not necessarily that it was still in her body. I just just assumed that Suyin did her stupid job right. <laughs> that was really depressing. I was like, ugh, you know. Um, and then, uh, oh, and among these, this this revelation, we also get, you know, Toph. Just I just want to throw this line out there. She she calls Korra the worst Avatar ever, um, <laughs> which, speaking of harsh things to say, um, she's like, I've only known two Avatars, but. You're the worst. <laughs> it's like, um, so, uh, so yeah, that was, that was a little harsh, but I, I think, I think that she's just frustrated with, you know, Aang saw an immediate thing that needed to be dealt with, you know, the Fire Nation and, you know, that was, and so he, everything he did was to, to that end and he had already rejected society and rejected his position, you know, a hundred years ago and that led to the war. Um, and now he's like, I'm never going to do that again. Whereas Cora is sort of doing that now. She's, she's kind of like the boy in the iceberg, you know, a little bit with her, you know, her, her retreat to the swamp and her retreat away from her family and her friends. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think that if, if Toph had known Aang before the, uh, before, you know, he rejected his avatar status, um, she probably would have had very little patience for him as well. Um, but she met him after he's like, I'm never doing that again. And that was a very different Aang than we got, you know, than we would have seen, you know, in his first 12 years of his life. And I, I think that's what her frustration is here. She's like, Aang never would have done that. And in fact, he did. But she just wasn't around for that. Yeah. Um, I w- do you think we're going to get more of Toph? Because this seems like a very final uh, uh, moment. Oh, the, yeah. Or a Toph relationship. Oh, yeah. We're getting more of Toph. No question. Hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. This is definitely going to be a thing. Um, she, well, she's got to. She, she's gonna. I think she's gonna come out, emerge from the swamp without the metal. So we have to get more scenes with that. Toph probably. Well, the other thing too is you mentioned. You know, she's so abrasive and so harsh in this episode. And I think that if that's all it is, then they really underutilized Toph. There was no reason really for her to be in it other than fan service. And I don't think that's what they're doing at all. I think this is her you know, rough on the outside, you know, uh, episode, and we're going to get the, you know, tough, softy on the inside uh, follow-up fairly soon. Um, so we're going to get in the next episode her still being tough um, and then, you know, saying, you know, maybe I was harsh, maybe we should, maybe we should try and figure this out. I don't think, I don't think Toph cares, though. I really don't, because she says she can see everything, which means she saw every single threat that Korra and that her daughters have faced in the past however many years, and she did nothing. She had no... She was not influenced in any way to come out of hiding to aid them. But that's not her... You know, first of all, she says she can see all that. I don't... Again, I question that. Um, And... Or maybe she believes she can understand what's going on simply through that, but, you know, um, when there was a real threat to the world, she she didn't just for her own selfish reasons decide to join the, the gang. She went on her um she went because she was you know she was part partially you know because she wanted to do the right thing and help stop the fire lord um and you know she always seemed sort of individual you know like to take an individual approach to that whole situation but she certainly did a lot especially you know in the finale to help you know the gang get to to where they were trying to go and i think um it would not be in her character to just reject her like that. I think she's this, this episode is her, you know, beating, you know, is her being selfish and beating up the avatar cause she wants to have fun. Um, but we're going to soon see that she's not, that she's, there's obviously more going on underneath the service and we're going to get a proper tough training session. You know, she didn't train her at all. She just basically used her as a punching bag and then left and like left it at that. And that's not how Toph trained Aang at all. And she knows that full well. So I would be very surprised if that was the end of Toph. I think we're going to get a proper training sequence. Maybe. I'm skeptical. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it really, I think it's a question of is probably going to start the next episode. If they deal with it next episode, she's going to start the episode taking the metal out of her body, finally getting around to it, and then Toph saying, okay, now we can train. Because... The entire time they, she was beating her up, she knew full well there was metal in her body. Toph knew that there was metal in Korra's body, and she was irritated that Korra hadn't done anything about it. Um, and that's why she calls her the worst avatar ever. And I think that that's what we're going to get. We're going to get her finally, you know, whatever, getting over that emotional, psychological barrier. And then we're going to get Toph saying, okay, now that we've accomplished that, I can actually train you. 
I guess. I guess we'll. I guess we'll. See. <laughs> I mean, uh, she. Right. She. It's not like she. She like leaves at the end of, um, the episode. She's just sitting in the corner. It's. It's true. Well, we don't see her leave. I mean, we don't see her leave. She doesn't. Just, she just... doesn't like. She doesn't like close off like a room for herself out of the. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's fine. And he, oh, and here's the other best evidence I have for that. Uh, we have that very short scene where Tenzin tells Milo, Iki, and Jinora that they have to go find Toph. And if that doesn't mean we're getting... Uh, uh... I thought they were going to find Korra. Oh, sorry. They're going to find Korra. And if that doesn't mean that they're going to have hilarious scenes with Toph, I don't know what does. You know yeah. that that scene is going to happen. I think there was a scene, a shot on the trailer of them... There's some airbenders in the swamp. Well, there you go. Well, I, so yeah, maybe you're right. At least one more episode. Yeah. You have to, and you know Milo is going to get along just fine with Toph. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's like a, a little soup Nazi. I don't know. He's a strange kid. Um, but, you know, they're going to get along. It's going to be uh, it's gonna be fun. And also, you know, Toph probably has at least some passing familiarity, not with the kids because it doesn't seem like they've had any interaction, but with airbender, you know, Aang's kids at least. And so that's going to be... Uh, a fun dynamic. So yeah, I think we're definitely going to get that. It's going to there's going to be some wild antics in the swamp um, following this. And then the last thing we've got going on is um, just so that we don't leave it out is the uh, the spirit vines, which have made a reappearance. <laughs> yeah. What happened to the vines? Now they're a thing again. Yeah. So that's cool. What is up with this? What? Oh my! This is this was very. This is the most interesting thing about this episode by far. Was this final shot? of Beric making some kind of machine with the power of the spirit vines and for what for what purpose he says this is going to change everything but we don't know which is intentionally enigmatic of course yeah exactly um i said in the when we talked about the season premiere that kuvira was separate from the other villains of this series because she wasn't uh, she didn't deal with the the spiritual aspect of this world in any way and i countered that um that she's, you know, an industrialist, and that's always going to affect the spiritual world. Although now she seems to, that um, industrial spirit... Oh, jeez. <laughs> that industrial nature... See... Mm, boy. Uh, that uh, The industrialism... I'm not finding about it. The in, uh, <laughs> correct, uh, direct... Oh, boy. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, yes, right. right. It's, more <laughs> right. it's more overt now. Yeah, exactly. It's It's now, like... Literally using uh, technology in in uh, to exploit spirit energy with in combination with uh, spiritual things. Yeah. To I guess it's implied maybe extract spiritual energy for some other purpose or uh, maybe some kind of spirit like weapon. Yep. It's it's not clear. It's even you know I actually hope it's not a weapon or some like doomsday device or some, you know... I, I don't think it is. Uh, I don't think it's any of that. I think it's simply, even if she just uses it to power trains and, like, electricity and stuff, and it's just a superior source of energy, because it requires harvesting spiritual stuff, it's going to put her to direct odds with the spirit world. Yeah, that, that's a possibility, I guess. Yeah, it's just an energy source. Um, although, and I, I guess, yeah, yeah, having the spirit vine just in this uh, kind of tank with things hooked up to it, that, that does kind of read as they're sucking the energy or some with some some kind of power out of it right um maybe it's the fact that it can regenerate and they're maybe and, yeah. and then it's every time it tries to regenerate it's an endlessly renewable power source yeah, yeah. that's that's a very good point yeah that's that's true um yeah, which again good for the people in some ways you know 
Exactly. And I guess that would be... Well, there you go. Like Again, like I was talking about in the premiere, that's why we finally kind of have an implication of a good reason for Korra and Kuvira to come into conflict, is if, you know, Kuvira is using, well, or misusing uh, the spirit vines to, you know, for the, for the betterment of the people, but in a way that is destructive to the spirit world or to the spiritual balance. I mean, this, this season is called Balance. It has to, you know, obviously this is going to cause some kind of imbalance with the spirit world. You know, what's funny about this is we, you know, I had speculated before Spirits, uh, the book book two, that this was the conflict, this exact thing, that this was going to be, it was going to be about the conflict because The Last Airbender had been so focused on environmentalism in a lot of ways. Um, their whole, you know, The Painted Lady is like a huge episode about that very subject. Um, but uh, I think uh, that this this is even... This is this. So they didn't deal with it then. It was more about, I don't know, season two was weird. But this season is <laughs> going to be more about the direct conflict between, um, between you know, technology and spirits, which I think is great because, and, and the natural world, which is great because it's a callback, uh, but it still feels new. It's something that they've never done before. And the best part about it is everything that happens that Kuvira is manipulating, you know, or exploiting, or, and Varka are exploring, exploiting spirit energy is a result of Korra leaving the portals open. Mm, you know, yeah, it's Korra's fault. Yeah. It's Korra's, it's not Korra's fault that they used it for that purpose, but it's her fault for connect, reconnecting the two worlds. And what do humans do when they see a resource? They inevitably exploit it, as Agent Smith would say. Hmm. That's true. That's interesting. Um, Hmm. Which is just another thing for her to feel bad about. And I'm sure the spirits will be mad at her, not at Kuvira. Yeah, well, I, Kuvira says in this episode that, you know, you know, uh, power and or whatever leadership shouldn't come from your lineage. It should come from technology and innovation. I think those are the words she, she says, technology and innovation. So if that's her viewpoint, that um, the true ultimate arbiter of uh-huh. just power and justice and, and righteousness is technology and um, inventiveness and, and whoever's on the forefront of the newest developments in that area, who is Varica and her, by extension, mm-hmm. um, then I can definitely see how, ob- obviously, the spirits are a source of, you know, technological uh, potential that ha- no one has explored yet. And maybe f- for for better, or maybe for worse, we don't know. And from I can see Kuvira saying, like, look... Uh, we didn't know whether or not this would be a good or bad thing until we tried it. And from, if you ask the people of the Earth Empire, then they would probably say that they have an endless supply of, of pow- free power for everyone, so it's a good thing for them. And what do I care about the spirits? The spirits have no effect on me right. at all. Right, so, exactly. And that's where Korra has to come in as, you know, fulfill the Avatar duty of saying, of protecting the spirits from the humans and vice versa, and saying, look you got to stop this. This is bad for the world, whether you can see it or not. By the way, can I just say that naming a, a, a nation after a system of government, like you can't ever have a democratic earth kingdom. It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's, it's the, it's the earth democracy or the earth Republic or the earth something. Um, I, when they changed, when she said, you know, now it's the earth empire, I was thinking to myself, 
Yeah, you would have to change the name if you're going to change the whole system of government, <laughs> would you? I never even considered that. Well, if they had called it the United Earths, the United States of Earth, it'd be a little too on the nose. Oh, yeah, a little bit. A little. <laughs> Although it would be more accurate, let's be honest. And also, uh, now Korra has to go up against an evil empire? We were talking about Star Wars last week? Oh. <laughs> yep, and she One might have step a closer, star man. weapon if that's a thing. That I mean, yeah, hey, if, if this is the, the, the death plant that, that Varric is building. Clearly. And it's all going to come together. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, um, yeah, that, uh, the, the parallels are clearly a, a thing in this, in this, um, maybe she'll use it to blow up Zaufu as a show of force. <laughs> and you know what? I could totally see her doing that too. Really? I could totally see that happening. You know, in a, um, Alderaan style Death Star blow up. That's what's gonna happen. I really think that's what's gonna <laughs> I happen. I don't think that's what's gonna happen. I think that would be too obvious. Um, this these two seasons just show, I think, as we've we're seeing, how much more I think the creators could have done with this whole series if they had had the knowledge they would have four seasons. Because you get these little things that are so that pick up again in this season that are, you know, they're trying to do that by picking up on things in season one and two, but it's a lot more forced because they weren't subtle in the original two seasons. And so now it's like to reference them, you're like, really, that was part of it. Whereas when you, you know, there was that random scene that seemed random to us, of course it was going to have like ramifications, but seeing Varric with the, um, the magnetic suit, that now that same technology has probably been used for the trains and definitely was used for their outfits and also for their, um, their, you know, their soldiers and things like that. Uh, and it was just a small scene. And so we get to see the, the outcome of that three years later, the, the technology and the fact that that was probably what got Varg into the inner circle of Kavira's, you know, most trusted advisors. So, you know, we didn't get that in the first two seasons. Uh, at all, because there wasn't any idea that there would be a continuation. Whereas now, with season three, they can immediately do these small little things, or like mention Kuvira, but without doing anything overt. And then, oh, now she's in charge of things, and it's like there's there's a lot more subtlety to the to these arcs, these multi-season arcs. Yeah, the continuity has been a big thing this season, especially like we talked oh, yeah. about with you know that scene in the lobby, picking up with different characters we haven't seen in a while. And you're right, I think it does come out of the knowledge that not only this is that this is the last season but the knowledge that they've had in the past that we can insert things and then bring them up later and it'll seem cool because that that thing was there all along and they said I think with, we've mentioned with no payoff in that season that's the thing is that they can put yeah, exactly. things in that have no payoff within 13 episodes they can do it in 26 or and um I think we talked about this in a previous episode that the creators have said that this season is going to tie everything from the previous seasons together. And I think this is, this is the area that's more what they were referring to is that we're going to get all these different elements from the previous seasons and they're <laughs> going to, and I no, that was my fault. I'm sorry. That was completely my fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. I try I mean, to avoid the word element when I talk about this show, just to avoid confusion. Yeah. Well, and they're going to, uh, all come together and uh, work together as one, and um, well, the, the, yeah, but all the different aspects <laughs> from previous seasons, and they're going to be brought up again in this different context, in the context of a you know villain and a problem that again was set up as a side you know bit of the previous season, the the dissolution of of the Earth Dynasty, 
was you know a side effect of of the, the Red Lotus's plan last season. It wasn't the main focus, and um, certainly the Metal Clan wasn't the main focus, and Kuvira absolutely was not the main focus, and and neither was Varric or, or anyone else. But we're getting now everything is starting to to come back together in a way that doesn't feel like you said that doesn't feel forced. It it feels like a natural progression of events based on what we know about this world and based on what we know about how things operate and, and what has happened in the past, it seems like all of this could genuinely could have happened. Like this is, this seems like a logical progression. Right. And, and if they just... really, especially if they go with this, you know, the portals being Korra's fault and really tying that into season two, which seems like the most outlier season. Although we still haven't brought up the equalist again at all. Yeah, no mention. mentioned him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that'll be, That'll be weird if they bring that in again, but I think that there's, there, there's certainly they've they've meshed three seasons together. It's the first season I think that if, if they do the spirit thing, they've meshed three seasons together, and it's the, the it's the first season that they've got to tie back in, even though it was like supposed to be a mini series originally. So, oh, and we didn't even mention Toph says to Korra like the world doesn't need the Avatar, the world doesn't oh, yeah. need you, which is like what we've been saying. It's the, the theme. theme. It's this... the main theme, except Toph, of course, just says it because I mean, yeah, she's but... Toph. Exactly, but it's it is the main theme of the series is this question of whether or not the Avatar is even necessary in this world anymore. And now Toph is is expressing that no, the Avatar is not necessary at all. And it's going to be interesting to see Korra's if that's the end game that we're building towards is a which I think a, it is. Yeah, I think absolutely. Then it's going to be interesting to see Korra's journey this season, having to you know fight back and and and. You know, I think we're become gonna... the Avatar again. If then the end is her realization that it was all that everyone else was right, and it was there was no point. I think we're going to see a similar uh, thing that we saw in season two, actually, um, where you know we're starting from point A, we're going to point C, and then sort of backtracking a little bit to B, where you know she was um, she was beaten or whatever and you know she was down for the count and her past lives were destroyed and then she defeated uh vatu unalak um and then still though didn't bring everything back to the status quo she still left the spirit portals open which is you know sort of not all the way back to where she started where things have changed um and i think in but in this book if she you know she's starting from you know, zero, she might work her way back to avatar status, but then sort of retract a little bit and maybe relinquish the position or do something to really change the way avatars work permanently. I mean, yeah. Well, let's think about the arc of, of book three. That book is called change. Mm -hmm. And what ultimately changes in that book is obviously the airbenders come back. That's a big change. Mm -hmm. And, um, Zaheer and the red Lotus's whole movement was about change in terms of the world, the uh, politics of the world. Mm -hmm. But, at the end of the season, what's ultimately changed is that the Avatar is out of commission, and the Avatar can't help anymore. And I think that's the that's the biggest change is that the Avatar duties won't be handled by the Avatar, but they'll be handled by the Air Nation. The Air, you know. So, I think that ultimately, maybe, and we'll get certainly better context for this once this season ends. Maybe that's what that season ultimately was about: is that is this. The, the change in the world is not um, any of these other things. It's the change in the world is everyone having to deal 
uh, with their problems without the Avatar. And, you know, ultimately, whether or not they can do a good job on their own. And we'll see how Korra deals with Kuvira. And that'll be, I guess, the answer to that question. Yeah, it will be. But I, th- I was going to say, I don't think they're handling it all that well because Kuvira is just sort of seizing power. That's true. And I guess that'll be... Um, that, that's the, best that's the impetus for her coming back into it, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that she'll stick with the job. Yeah, and I think... Well, I mean, Kuvira's uh, whole spirit thing is, I think, probably going to be the best argument for um, the, the Avatar's presence in the world is that people can mess with the spiritual balance even more now with the technological advancement and the avatar now more than ever has to be a force for spiritual that keeping that spiritual balance but on the other hand is that you know can the world handle its more general uh mortal world balance without the avatar and if Kuvira's argument is not is <laughs> if the only if Kuvira is ultimately taken down not because of her political you know, shenanigans and her dictatorship, but because of her spiritual messing around, then I'll be a li- I'll be a little disappointed because it seems like just an easy way to get around. I don't the... think that's gonna. I think it's gonna be a combination of things. I think it is, but I I, I think like we've been saying, the, uh, the the reason for Korra to get back in the game is the spiritual stuff, and that's where their conflict is probably gonna arise from. Well, it is, but you know, I you know, you said that earlier, and I don't know that it's gonna be a combination of things. Kuvira's you know, Kavira's inevitable maybe invasion or attack on Zafu or attack on somebody that Korra knows is probably going to be her impetus to come back into it. The spirits are like another factor. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, Zhao was like, I don't care about spirits, and then just did the whole Twi Law thing because he sucks. Um, but <laughs> Ozai wasn't really concerned with that, but also didn't care about his industrialism affecting the environment. And so you get. You had two aspects of the same, you know, they're both Fire Nation, so the Fire Nation was was both mi- militarily and politically a problem, but also environmentally and spiritually. And, you know, you got to see it over, you know, spread across many different characters. With Kuvira, we might see it all in one, but I think they're all part of a whole. Yeah, that's true. I guess, I guess, I guess we'll see how this goes down. I'm very interested to see uh, where the reveal comes for the rest of the worlds of and the rest of the main cast of characters that uh, Kuvira needs is, is the villain of the, of this series. And I think maybe Bolin will be the first to um, really... Yeah, the, the first to break away from the... Although, I mean, the rest of the world leaders are obviously are not on board with what Kuvira is doing, but I think it'll be Bolin ultimately who, like we've said, is the very much, very much the, I think, the heart of the core cast um, who will see what something that Kuvira is doing that does not sit right with him to the extent that he does not feel comfortable being a part of the movement anymore. I wonder if they'll have a fight and she'll imprison him and throw him in a prison camp and he'll have to escape. Maybe. I mean, um, lava versus... Metal. Whatever. Could be Metal. fun. Oh, yeah. Who knows? We haven't seen any, any lava from him this season so far. We haven't, and we haven't seen lava versus metal before. So that'll That's be fun. That's true. It's, a, it's just, it's cool. It's not like something that needs to happen, but I could see them having a fight Kuvira probably winning because she seems very adept. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed. So the next episode is called The Calling. Yeah, this is the first title revealed for this season because in the announcement video for the release date, it just happened to be behind them. The title ah, right, part. yep. Uh, another weird example of the way they're announcing the titles for this season. 
we've just we've known about this one since before it started, just episode four. And yet we still know nothing more about it because the calling doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I was kind of wondering, like, when it was released, I was like, yeah, I'm sure by the time, you know, we've watched episode three, we'll know why we have an implication, you know, maybe a, a suggestion of what that might mean in terms of where the story is going. But I have, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea, though I would hazard a guess that it's something about spirits, you know, um, either Korra's past lives or spirits or something calling her to, she hasn't gone to the spirit world in a while. And I love the way the art, well, she went in Korra alone, uh, briefly to meditate on the tree of time. Oh no, but that wasn't, Oh, that is the spirit world. Yeah. She comes in through the, yeah, yeah, right. That is the spirit world, but it's very, very brief. And it's a great shot. You know, where you see the big, you know, tree and then, um, but then it's very brief. But I think that she can go back in and, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the spirit world and a lot more than just the tree. Um, And it would be cool to, to see that, especially if she's, you know, being called by, you know, the spirits to go and deal with, you know, maybe she needs to go get some more Iroh advice or maybe she needs to go and get some, um, you know, get in contact with her past lives somehow uh, because the other thing too is while she can't contact her past lives through Rava, maybe in the spirit world, someone will know a way of contacting just people who have died, which would also include the avatars. Hmm. Like there, there's a lot of ways they could do it that might, you know, allow her to, uh, you know, uh, get, get some guidance from that part of her. That... I think, I think if I had to hazard a guess, I, I think the calling might refer to just, you know, the, her avatar duties. Uh, and her, at the end of the next episode, kind of, you know, yeah, kind of stepping up to the plate and, and going back to her duties. And then, because, you know, we're, after that, we'll be a third of the way, that'll be the end of Act One of this season, which seems like a, as good a place as any for Korra to go back and then join the fray. So, uh, that would be it my is, but it's so, guess. it's so much more boring than, like, getting a mysterious call from someone in the spirit world and then, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. I, well, yeah, I guess we'll see. Like, what I, if Juan? Cool. What if it's Juan or or something? You know. Well, Juan, will I'm sure we'll we'll see again. I'm I sure. Have no doubt. Yeah, I have no doubt, especially after the reaction people had towards him in, in book two. Um, or maybe it'll be Stinky, or you know, one of the uh, spirits. Yeah, there have been no callbacks to beginning, so it's no callbacks. Something, and that would be great. Or a callback to any of the spirits from Last Airbender. We haven't seen any of them show up either, and they've all got relationships, various relationships with um. We saw Wan Shitan, didn't we? Oh yeah, that's true. We did see one. We saw that we saw one, but it, and that was I loved that scene. That was hysterical. It was great. But um, yeah, you're right. We haven't um, in terms of spirit, we haven't seen Ko. We haven't seen uh, the the panda bear. We all want to um, see Ko attack Kugira and steal her face. I maybe that's, I mean that's how the series ends. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, <laughs> Ko is such a fan favorite. Um, well, it's and, brilliant. No, Ko is amazing. Ko is terrifying. I don't know if Ko comes from some sort of, um, like, Asian mythology that, you know, or, or religious context that I don't know about, but if it's a creation it, for it the show, it's like, amazing. Yeah. It seems like the kind of, um, you know, religi- religious parable that, that would come about uh, in that way. And it's so... Ko is so terrifying, not just because of the design of the character is terrifying, but just the concept of, if you show emotion, he will steal your face. Yeah. The the idea that you cannot react in any way 
is what really that's the tension of that scene that is the tension of the scene but you know what's also cool is that they've elaborated on that character with the mother of faces and all that stuff yeah yeah that was cool and i I did finally read those comics during hiatus um they're very cool yes they're excellent they're excellent um they definitely add a lot of context and i'm very curious to see how the rift ends which might give us more context on top as an old yeah that's i was going to mention when you mentioned the rift we don't really know at this point um where her relationship with her parents went it's there's every suggestion that they might reconcile in that final installment Hmm. maybe well we never know you never know um (laughs) so uh well maybe we'll get some more answers there maybe we'll find out who i hope they never answer the Toph um marriage thing or who she never (laughs) because that'll be hilarious it'll just really anger people um because like maybe it's just some guy you know it's or it's like two different guys that Toph ended up being with at various points throughout her life maybe that's all it is yeah, people I are so desperate for it to be somebody from the original series. It's like you know what? Maybe it's not. Oh no, I never, I never thought that at all. I doubt it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's people though. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'm oh, I'm sure there is. Yeah, I, uh, but. <laughs> um, but anyway, all right. So the calling, and uh, yeah, I look forward to discussing that episode next week. Awesome. All right. Uh...